Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Hey folks, welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Um, We are, as you know, you've been living it folks. We are in unique times, unprecedented times, strange times, amazing times, beautiful times, whatever you are going through as we navigate these, these times of change. Just know I'm sending you love, prayers, blessings, um, and just many thoughts to you and your family. Uh, As you know, I've been having some very special guests on the last few weeks uh, of Soul Talk, folks like Neil Donald Walsh and Lynn Twist and... We have many more amazing folks that are that are going to be coming on, just just talking about these these times and helping you navigate these times of change and crisis, and and, and maybe finding ways to grow and use this time as an evolutionary opportunity. I, I just want to say I'm really, I know I say that every episode, but I'm really excited about my guest today. Um, I think he's a very. I mean, I've never actually met him in person, but I feel I have. I, I read his book, The Ascent of Humanity. It was given to me actually. At a party, a guy showed up at my party years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, said, hey, read this book. I'm like, what the hell is this book? And I read it. And let me tell you, it kind of blew my mind, opened my heart. I've still been digesting it. Um, a few weeks ago, I read an essay he wrote, The Coronation, which was very insightful and touching. And, and I think he's such a very uh, unique voice in today's landscape of thinkers and authors and you know, brings in such a, an amazing balance of science and spirituality and history and, you know, sustainability that uh, I'm excited to have the amazing Charles Eisenstein on today. Charles, welcome to Soul Talk. Wow. Uh, so happy to be here. Thanks for, for such a generous introduction, Kit. Listen, man, I've, I've wanted to have you on for since the first time I, I launched Soul, Soul Talk, but I remember literally uh, receiving this book right here. Uh, from a friend, and I'm like, when I, when I held it, I'm like, whoa, this feels intense, and then it just took me on a journey. So uh, you're truly, you're an inspiration. Um, you inspire me. I deeply respect you, and I'm just looking forward to just diving in and helping, getting your insight on, you know, what's happening in humanity. I'm always impressed. I'm always impressed when somebody's actually read The Ascent of Humanity. I, I can't say I understood everything, but I, I did my best. <laughs> I, I'm still digesting it, brother. I'm still digesting yeah. I'm still digesting it too, actually. Good. So listen, um, there's a lot I want to ask you, but I would love to hear a bit about just, just to set a context for those that may not know your story, uh, just a bit about your journey in, in, in terms of how you got to writing books and teaching today and, you know, sacred economics and, and just an author, a teacher, philosopher. I mean, how, how does one... How does that happen? How, what was your journey? Give us a bit of a framework so that then we can just dive in. I'm, I'm curious how it started. Yeah. Did, did you always uh, know? 
was it always in your genes, family history, growing up? Was there a special? Do you, do you want the Do you want the official story or? No, what? give me the real, give me the real stuff. <laughs> I want the real story. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, we have we time. Really, do we ever really know the reason that we do things? Oh. Uh, I've had a narrative about my journey that is pretty flattering to myself, but lately I've become curious of, about the real reasons why I do things. You know, I, you mentioned the ascent of humanity, which was, is this 600 page tome that I spent years working on, pouring my heart and soul mm. into. And I thought it was because, and maybe this, there's still truth in this, that I just had one of those insights that brings you to your knees mm. that I felt like I had to share. And it was basically the, the, um, response that came to me from a question I had held for 20 years uh, that would never, or maybe I would say that the question held me for 20 years, which was, what's wrong with this world? <laughs> like, why? Why is this happening? Because I had become aware, um, having had a, a politically radical father, having read uh, uh, various uh, radical uh, uh, histories and literature, like seeing the you know Ethiopian famine on TV. I mean, like mm. I had an understanding that buttressed my uh, intuitive rejection of mm. the system that I had been cast into. You know, the whole idea that you know you go to school and you hate it and you fill out worksheets and a good little boy does that. And like, there's part of, part of me that was like, no, this can't be right. It's beautiful outside. Mm. And I need to raise my hand to go to the bathroom. Like this can't be how it's supposed to be. Mm. And so reading this radical literature, it, it confirmed my intuition that there's something deeply wrong with the world and it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. A more beautiful world is possible. That, that, so, you know, that that's what birthed that question in me. What is the real cause of the wrongness that I perceived going all the way down? So, you know, I went down the Marxist rabbit hole. I went down the, the radical critiques of civilization, post-colonial thinking, all of the um, diagnoses and found most of them to be insufficiently deep. And if you don't go all the way to the bottom, you risk uh, recreating the same problem in a different form. Mm. So anyway, this is getting to be a long story, but I, I had this revelation. I still haven't even gotten to the real reason maybe why I did this. But I had this, <laughs> this revelation when I was going for a walk, actually, in a suburban neighborhood where we had moved after... I had lived in Taiwan and we were having babies anyway. So I wanted them to have a, a good suburban ideal childhood, mm. which I envisioned there'd be packs of kids running around playing cops and robbers, you know, and building worlds of the imagination and, and having this freedom of childhood, the kingdom of childhood. Mm. Nothing of the sort existed mm. by the time I reached adulthood. That mm. was gone. Every kid was inside on a screen. And their parents wouldn't even let them outside. Wow. Like that was play was such a low priority. And 
safety had become the overriding value of everybody because, you know, you can't just let your kids outside unsupervised. Yeah. And so I, I you know, realized that the, the migration of life indoors is not just some dumb idea people had, but it's a product of technology, of the automobile, of the television, of the air conditioner. Mm. All of the things that we celebrate as development create conditions of isolation and fragmentation. And I'm like, this is a form of separation that is, is coming from the same place as uh, human separation from nature, the same place as uh, the separation of, of body and mind, of flesh and spirit, of um, like all of these, all, basically I, I kind of came to diagnose um, all of the problems of the world as different expressions of this uh, ascent of humanity in quotation marks, ironic quotation marks, ascent of humanity farther and farther away from nature, farther and farther away from each other, uh, based on this delusion that we are separate, that we are separate individuals. So then I, I, I just came to, I, I took that lens and, and applied it to medicine, to science, to politics, to economics, to money, you know, to, to um, psychology, like, and then observed that this course of separation generates crises that are birthing us into reunion. So the answer to my question, what is the wrongness in the world, actually turned out to be, it's not actually wrong. Mm. It's part of a larger process. Mm. So anyway, I just, I just thought, wow, I want to be part of this process wow. and share this insight that I've had and offer this lens to help people understand what's going on so that we might not cling to the world of separation the world of control, the world of domination, and so forth. Yeah. And then, you know, um, so I wrote this 600-page book, and, and there's a part of me that just wonders, maybe is the real reason some programming from school where mm -hmm. I thought that if I just turned the right answer into teacher, everything would be okay. Here's my assignment teacher, my 600-page paper, <laughs> <laughs> Give me my A plus, and the world is now everything's going to be great. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of an assignment you turned in. <laughs> yeah. So did I actually do it, you know, to serve this transition in the world, or did I do it so that I could uh, receive the approval right. of my internalized authority? Right. 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 Yeah. And you know, look smart and look yeah. good and and. Yeah. So yeah, this is part of the uh, inquiry. Part of the journey. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think whatever you did it, it was a blessing uh, for sure. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're going through some times right now. Uh, I know you wrote a, a really powerful, at least for me, powerful essay, Coronation. I really enjoyed it. I know lots of folks have been enjoying it. I know maybe, maybe many folks haven't read it. Um, and I know, you know, these are intense times. These are challenging times. I think uh, 
we haven't quite had times like these before. At least I haven't in my lifetime, many of us in our lifetimes. Um, I would love for you to give some perspective to those listening in, in terms of, you know, we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. You know, it does, it, it, it's so much uncertainty. Like, does, and I, it doesn't make sense. Does it make, does it make sense? It sounds crazy. I, you know, we're in shock. We're in denial. We're in anger. We're in like, what the hell is happening? And it's like a movie. It's like a reality show all in one. It's, it's like a tragedy. It's like a comedy. And yet, you know, on some level, there is some, it feels like something profound is also happening underneath it all. And so help us kind of get some perspective on, on, on the bigger picture of what you feel this yeah. experience is so we can kind of not just get stuck in it, Charles, but maybe evolve with it. You're talking about crisis as a rebirth reunion opportunity. Like give, give us some perspective so we can maybe shift our relationship with it. Cause people are scared right now, you know, my job and my career. And you talk about, what will the world look like for my children if they can't go out and play and, and social distancing? And so help us yeah. understand these times first and then I have some more questions for you. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot to say about it, as you know. And maybe I'll start by just reflecting on what you just said, like that we want to understand what's going on. We're mm -hmm. plunged into uncertainty. We don't know, we've never experienced anything like this before. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it means. And the first response is to try to fit it into a familiar framework of meaning. Right. To make sense of it. Mm. The risk in doing that is that we we're, we're resisting the initiatory power of something new coming into our lives. Mm. When we're trying to understand it, conceptualize it as something that we're already familiar with. Mm. So this could take the form of the mainstream, the official view of, okay, dangerous virus, and we have to control, control it, and we can win a fight against an external bad guy. Mm -hmm. That's the, the dominant narrative. And this is a very familiar way for our society to address a problem. We're mm -hmm. comfortable with problems that we can uh, blame on a perpetrator. Mm. Unlike a lot of the, a lot of our social and physical ills that are not easy anymore to find an external enemy to blame. Back a few hundred years ago, you know, it was a plague. It was definitely something from the outside or it was a foreign nation invading us. Mm. Like that was easy to understand and easy to respond to. I mean, you might not be able to win the war, but you know what to do. It's to fight a war. Mm -hmm. That's not so easy when what you're facing isn't an invasion, mm -hmm. but it is domestic violence mm. or uh, civil violence, uh, crime, for example. Um, it's easy if you have an infectious disease to fight that, but not if it's an autoimmune condition. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, where, where the immune system turns on the body, like then what do you fight? Do you fight yeah. yourself? Not so easy if what you're facing is depression or uh, addiction. Mm. It's like the, 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 the problems that are plaguing society now don't fall into that category of here's a bad guy and let's fight it. Right. So now comes uh, 
COVID-19. And there's almost like, it's, you know, it's like, you know, people who watch horror movies, there's a, there's a psychological relief in watching a horror movie because all of our uh, unconscious fears can take shape hmm. as this horror. Hmm. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, the horror is overcome and all, it's all good. So mm-hmm. this is kind of like a real life horror movie. Here's this monster, COVID-19, this scary yeah. virus that comes. Yeah. And now our um, inchoate uh, semi-conscious fears yes. take shape. Now we know what to be afraid of and we know what to do about it. So we, we go into overdrive in fighting this bad guy. And that... So that's like the dominant form of sense-making that is applied to the situation. Mm. And it goes into overdrive, I feel, like, and, and obscures any other way of seeing it wow. or relegates other ways of seeing it to the margins. Mm. And now we're starting to see the narrative crumbling a bit. Mm. Uh, it depends, and this is, depends on what rabbit hole you go down. You know, there are entire sectors of the internet that are highly skeptical of the official narrative and more than one, and they don't even agree with each other. Hmm. So this, this question that you started with, like, what do I think about this? Yeah. I think it's actually good to be in the unknowing huh. and not to jump too quickly into, oh, I know what it is. It's, you know, the conspirators, the, the Illuminati who are on purpose right. uh, creating conditions for totalitarian takeover. I knew it. Mm. Now they're, now they're doing it. Like that is an explanation for it all Mm. that is violently opposed to the official explanation. And there are many of these. And so I look at like, why am I attracted to one over another, over another? Is it because I have dispassionately evaluated all of the evidence Mm. or is it that I gravitate toward the one that makes me feel a certain way? And that is consistent with everything else I believe. Mm. Maybe we need to, to, and this is what I was saying in the essay, to take this intervention seriously, to take mm. this reset, to take this pause, to mm. say, maybe I, maybe I don't know yeah. what it is. And I'm open to learning something new about myself and the world. Maybe reality isn't as I thought. Because it's not working. Something's not working now. This is, yeah, I could say more, but maybe I'll, I'll pause. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I want you to continue. One, one question was, I think it's, it's, it's beautiful to hear, okay, maybe we need to stay in the unknown, you know, and not just impose our preconceived ideas or predispositions. And I think it, it, it can be so hard because in the unknown, it, it, it's so uncertain and there's so much uh, fear. And could you just, before you continue, speak to how, 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 how does one stay in the unknown without just freaking out, you know, and feeling so much panic? Because uh, uh, I think there'll be people that are going to cling to something just for a sense of sanity. And uh, it's scary to be in the unknown. And so... Maybe yeah. speak, speak to that a little bit as you kind of keep breaking down. 
I'm not sure if it's really so much of a how-to. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's more to contact the part of yourself that isn't mm. afraid of the unknown mm. and that actually welcomes change <laughs> and that was actually maybe kind of sick of the way things were and felt trapped in the old normal. And every time that that part of you read the news and, and heard about some impending catastrophe, whether it was climate change or financial collapse or 2012 or whatever, you know, an asteroid striking the earth, some part of you that's like, yeah, baby, bring it on. Because mm. mm. I'm stuck. We're stuck. Civilization has been stuck on a pathway toward a place that's not very good, toward ecological destruction, toward uh, social inequality, toward racial oppression, mm. I mean, toward totalitarian control. Mm. Um, we haven't been marching toward a world that anyone really wants. Yeah. And so this is kind of, um, yeah, so there's part of us that, that would actually choose uncertainty because any change involves uncertainty. If it is a fully controlled programmed change, it's actually just an extension of what we already have. Right. <laughs> Real change involves death, mm. the death of something. And death always is a step into uncertainty because the self has dissolved to some extent at least. Mm. And it's a step into the unknown. So there's part of us that welcomes that and that part of us is brave. And I think that, that, so this question of how do we stop being afraid of uncertainty, it's more like that fear can't be conquered, but it can be held in, um, in or, or by a deeper part of us that isn't afraid, that is ready to grow, that's ready to change, that's ready to move on, that's ready to, to release some of the things that now we're realizing maybe we didn't need after all. Mm. Like, do we actually need um, to devote so much of our energy to sporting events, you know, or to, to tourism travel um, or to, to like many of the things that we're doing without to restaurant food. Like people are cooking a lot more now. Mm. Maybe we don't want to go back to normal in some ways. Mm. And so it's, and maybe some things, <laughs> the other thing that's happening is that our destination that we had been unconsciously marching toward is being revealed to us because the responses to COVID-19 are not new. They are intensifications of the direction we've already been going. Social distancing is not new. Keeping kids indoors safe and the obsession with safety is not new. Hmm. Restriction of civil liberties <clears throat> is not new. The destruction of small business is not new. The increase in government surveillance is not new. None of this is new. Hygiene, like hand washing and all that kind of stuff, like that obsession with hygiene, that's not new. Mm. So we're being asked, do we really want a world where we don't congregate anymore? Because that's been yeah. the trend wow. where we don't hug and handshake anymore, where we're afraid of each other, yeah. where we're dependent on the dispensations of a central authority for our livelihood. Is that what we want? We're being asked. And that's why I call it the coronation. 
because mm-hmm. a choice that has been unconscious is being brought into consciousness and we're being asked, what world shall we choose? What shall we contribute our life energy to create? Yeah. For, the, for those that might feel, because I think some folks that feel helpless, a little helpless, you know, in this moment, like we're being forced, forced, mandated to social distance, lockdown, not go out. You know, you talk about these liberties. Speak to the person that might feel helpless right now. Because you're saying we're being, these choices that were unconscious being brought to conscious awareness, our sovereignty, so we can choose. Do we have a choice moving forward? I mean, you know, vaccinations coming, who knows? Is it going to be mandated? Are we, I mean, personally, I don't want to get something, inject something into my body. Now I have to think of that. So do we have a choice? What choice do we have, Charles? If, how do we find the sense of freedom to choose as we're all being given a choice, but what if it's just imposed on us? How do we find, what, yeah. what can we do to find our own freedom when right. maybe the external structures are imposing a freedom? And yeah, kind of this, totally. I mean, this involves a political question. Yeah. Uh, on one level, I am talking about personal choice. Like we are being offered a choice on an individual level. Like, do you share or do you hoard, for example? Like, how do you respond when people are in need? But as you're saying, a lot of it is a political choice. What happens when, you know, the National Guard squad comes to your house to microchip you because you've been refusing and you don't right. want to be microchipped? Right. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating how the response, which is predicated on control, which yeah. is predicated on there being this enemy and we're in a war now, how similar that response is to Nazism. You know, we're going to have to round people up. We're going to have to control them. We're going to have to, to, to um, medicalize them. We're going to have to implant a chip in them, uh, an immunity passport. Like we're going to have to control people's movements. Uh, th- this is not necessarily because evildoers are cackling with glee that they now get to impose their wicked plans. It's just the tilt of civilization that sees progress as being imposing more and more control over the world. This goes back all the way to the first domestication. So anyway, that was a little diversion, but, but yeah, so this is a a political question. Like, do we have a choice? What you're really asking is, are we helpless? We, the the people, are we the helpless victims of the state? Or can we exert, can we exercise our power? And if so, how? It's not going to happen automatically. Coronavirus isn't coming in to rescue us from totalitarianism, but it is asking us, do we want that? And if we don't want that, if we don't want to be microchipped and forcibly vaccinated and surrender even the sovereignty of our physical bodies to the state, if we don't want to be told where we can be at any given time, and have your electronic hall pass that authorizes your presence in the place you want to go. If we don't want that future, we're going to have to claim a different future. We're going to have to organize politically. We're going to have to exert political power. We're going to have to actually have democracy. That's what it's about. So this, the, this choice on a collective level is really about stepping into our power. As, a, as, as the people, uh, because we've kind of relinquished it. And you can even see it now, you know, just with the, 
mostly the, the unquestioning acceptance of what we're being told this is and what we're being told to do, which doesn't mean that the official narrative is wrong. It might be right. The more I've learned about it, the more skeptical I've become that it is really as deadly and contagious as we've been told. Um, not to mention the, the responses to it. I mean, you know, the last 40 years of holistic and alternative health research is almost invisible or even ridiculed by the official outlets. It is what you're raising is a, is a political question. Yeah. Um, and it's not just, you know, what we do inside of our own heads, right. in our own hearts, right. it's how that's expressed. Yeah. Can you, can you also just speak to them, the, the, the inner part, the, the what do we do inside of our own heads and our own, our own hearts? Meanwhile, in terms of grappling with the situation and feeling powerless inside. And so from your perspective, what can we do inside of our own heads and our own hearts, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to reframe, to shift, to evolve, to grow, to become empowered within ourselves during this time? Uh, Mm -hmm. Share about that. Well, to the extent that we surrender our choice-making capacity to an external authority, we become unfree. Mm. So maybe what we need to do is to reclaim our power of choice. On one level, that is, is intellectual. It's the choice of what we believe. Do we accept the beliefs that are fed to us? Or do we start to question what we've been told? And again, that doesn't mean that what we've been told is wrong. But it's like, we're going to make up our own minds and, and do some investigating and look into some of the alternative narratives. Uh, look into some of the conspiracy theories, as they are called. Conspiracy theory, basically, it's become a label uh, to, to delegitimate anything that disagrees Right. with the truth as the truth is conceived by our authorities mm. um, and our institutions of knowledge product production, which would be the universities <clears throat> and the institution of science. Mm. The thing is, they've been wrong before. I mean, you know what, what the overwhelming scientific consensus in the 1920s was about the greatest threat to humanity? overwhelming consensus was that it was genetic degradation. Hmm. Inferior people were multiplying. And any scientific person would agree that something has to be done. Hmm. And something was done. Mass sterilization of the inferior. Hmm. For example, people who look like you. Hmm. Um, and, you know, then sterilization turned into extermination when, when Hitler got a hold of these ideas. And that was like, you know, it was scientifically almost unquestionable. I mean, of wow. course, there were people who disagreed with it, but they were marginalized. Mm. For the last 40 years, you know, the, uh, up until the last five years, actually, um, the scientific consensus was that dietary cholesterol causes heart disease. Now, it turns out that that's completely wrong. Mm. Um, that's still a little bit controversial, but... You know, we've, what we were told with the full weight of scientific authority has not been true. So 
you know, I'm hesitant to, to raise more examples because if I do, like more controversial ones, then <laughs> people are going to say, oh, Charles is just anti-science. Mm. That's why he's <clears throat> rejecting what we know, mm. putting scare quotes around all these things, mm. be true. Thing is, um, you know, then I go into my internal questioning, like how much of my rejection of the official narrative comes just from like some psychological defiance. You know, maybe mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. uh, a psychiatric condition called oppositional defiant disorder. <laughs> so I'm, I cherry pick the mm -hmm. uh, data points that seem to contradict the official narrative. Mm -hmm. And really I'm just being defiant. Like I want, so this is to answer your question. I want, not just myself, but everybody to start asking these questions. Why do I believe what I believe? Am I willing to be wrong? What would I have to sacrifice to be wrong? One mm. thing is certainty. You have to sacrifice certainty. In order to expand your mind, to grow, and even to become more alive, you have to sacrifice certainty and you have to sacrifice control. Certainty is a kind of an intellectual control. Mm. You have to sacrifice risk minimization, which is what our entire response to COVID-19 has been. It's about how do we minimize risk? How do we reduce the number of deaths? Mm. And I'm like, is that the most important thing in life? To be as safe as possible till you die? Mm. How, do, how can you be fully alive if you're always guarding against every conceivable risk? I mean, mm. you might as well stay indoors your whole time, your whole life and be in front of a screen. Yeah, which is what we're doing now. Yeah. Like, let's like let's live a little, you know. Mm. Let's and and to do that requires putting yourself at some kind of risk. Mm. So if it's if it's to expand your mind and your beliefs, then your the identity that's attached to being right is at risk. Mm. Who you thought you were in relation to what you thought the world to be is at risk. It mm. might change. So this is all, ultimately, this is all about facing death. Yeah. Which is what our culture, I don't know, how, how old were you when, when you moved? You, you grew up in I, Ghana. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up in Ghana, and then, you know, I, I moved from Ghana to London because of a coup. So I was just three. I mean, I don't consciously remember it, but, it, you know, it's, right. it's in there somewhere. But, yeah, that was a scary, scary, scary. Like, I'm sure in Ghana, they don't uh, hide death. They certainly did it then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there was, you, people were under no illusion that they were going to live forever. Yeah. You know, like death is much more in most parts of the world. Death is a lot more in your face. Yeah. It's not denied so well. What, what, why are we so, you know, cause I think with, with COVID, with Corona, COVID-19, death is in at least the idea of it is, is in people's faces a bit more. Not that it hasn't been there all along. We were just, you know, either avoiding it, not looking at it. And so, um, it's been brought to the consciousness of people. Why, why are we so afraid of it? And how can we begin to, to shift our relationship with it? You know, I mean, I love what you said, like, it's, you know, it, living requires risk. I mean, I, I, I'm someone that tends to come from the place of, I'm going to die anyway, Charles. At some point, obviously, I'm not going to go be stupid, but we have to risk, you know, it's just life. And, 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 some folks are the opposite end of the spectrum. Or maybe you're on this end of the spectrum. Uh, maybe there's a bit of, bit of a balance, but uh, 
why are we so scared of death? Like, what is that inside of us? I think you start touch on it, touching on it in terms of our identity and how do we, how do we overcome this fear? How do we move through it so that we're not so paralyzed while we're alive? Share some thoughts there. So I think one reason why as a culture we're so afraid of death is because of the way that we conceive of ourselves. Hmm. If, if we agree that what a self is, is this um, separate individual, uh, this biological robot almost, um, that is extinguished with, with, with a consciousness that is the product of, of a brain uh, that is then extinguished upon death, then like, death becomes the ultimate catastrophe for that separate self. It's the uh, end. It's annihilation. Yeah. So if you, if you are inhabiting that self, of course, self-preservation becomes the most important thing. Mm. But there's always, no matter how well you do it, you're still going to die. So there, it also, so this, to live according to self-preservation requires a kind of a denial of the truth. Mm. And our mm. culture, um, the dominant civilization, I'll say, has created all kinds of systems to aid and abet that denial. Mm. To make it seem that if you, you know, take the right supplements and the right face creams, you'll never age and you'll never die. <laughs> or if you have enough insurance, nothing bad will ever happen to you. If you have enough investments, if you have enough wealth, uh, if you can uh, fortify and expand that separate self and exert domination over the others who are also trying to do the same, mm. therefore they're in competition with you, then you're going to live forever. And no one actually believes that, but mm. it's as if they believe it. Because if you really take in the fact that you're going to die, then you're not going to devote so much resource to making it all the way to your grave. That's irrational. But from the sense of self that we've inherited in this civilization, it's hard to break free of that. Mm. So the antidote is, is to inhabit a larger, more connected self, a self that is built of all of your relationships, a self that is not limited to a skin encapsulated ego. Mm. To recover, I would say, lost parts of the self. And that includes um, unrecognized spiritual realms that are beyond the body as we know it. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say actually beyond the body because the body is so much more than we know. Mm. Like the body is spirit mm. made flesh. It's not a vehicle for spirit. That's part of the problem too. Mm. Uh, but it's also the ecological body and the social body that is that and and you you can you can experience this firsthand that you feel more alive when you are uh, in relationship to natural beings you feel more alive in a forest than in front of a computer screen for sure you feel more alive in community than in isolation for sure yeah so really i think that what the initiation being offered to modern society by covid and this initiation will be repeated until we get it <laughs> or until we die. Mm. Um, the initiation offered is to come um, to, to hold life sacred again, we could say. 
and to come into a larger, more connected self, holding life sacred. Like there's, you know, it's coming up. Like people are like, one reason that people are self-quarantining, it's not because they're afraid for themselves. It's because they want to take care of others. Mm. They want to do their part to limit the infection. Mm. Uh, and, and so that the vulnerable don't succumb to it, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful impulse and a step in the right direction, even if it might be epidemiologically misguided um, or you know, maybe not as necessary as we thought. Yeah. Because now it's looking like the um, virulence of the virus is much, much lower. Like the death rate's much, much lower than we've been told. But mm-hmm. anyway, that doesn't matter because it's still a beautiful impulse. That's a step in the right direction mm. uh, to, to hold these other lives sacred. But mm. I think part of holding life sacred mm. is to dissociate that with life prolongation. To live as long as possible is not the purpose of life. That's not holding life sacred. Holding life sacred is to ask, what is the right way to live? and the right way to die. Why am I here? What am I meant to bring to the world? When we understand ourselves as interconnected, interexistent, interdependent beings, then it's no longer about how do I preserve my separate individuality, but it's what can I give to the world? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Because I'm not just me. Anything I give to the world, I'm actually giving to myself too because I'm not just this little self. Mm. And so, so I think that that's what I'm, I'm holding for us, is that we recognize, coming through this, we recognize that social distancing and I would say biological distancing mm. aren't really what we want. Mm. We don't want to move in that direction. Mm. We tried that, and it's not worth it. Yeah. So what... what I guess from, from your vision, imagination, perspective, what would you see as or suggest as the best for humanity in terms of, okay, there's not social, like, how, like from your vision, how, how could we navigate these times? I mean, right now we've gone one end. Is there a way that you feel like from your imagination might be like, wow, this might be a beautiful way for us to navigate and go through this as a culture instead of just no one, no one connect, everyone stay at home for, for the next 12, 18 months, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. What, 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 how do you feel we should go through this? I'm not that there's a should, but, but how do you feel, what might be some possibilities that are different? What I, yeah. What I would like to see, like the lesson learned first, the, the consciousness that we are all in this together. Right, right. And we're going to take care of each other. <clears throat> and, and we're going to start looking at who hasn't been taken care of and ask, how do we take care of them? And what is it like to be them? Mm. This is happening a little bit when people are, are asking, what about the homeless? What are they going to do? What about the people in prisons? You know, um, it, a, 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 an encounter with death stirs empathy. It mm. stirs compassion. And we begin caring about more than just ourselves. Uh, death does that first by showing us the limits of ourselves, our mortality. Mm. And second, um, by, by confronting us with the suffering of others. Mm. So that's one 
uh, of the lessons I would like to see us learn. And adding to that, um, we're in this together and let's be more together Mm -hmm. Mm. in in every sense, including be more together with this world that we have made into an object of domination and control. Mm. So in the medical realm, it means opening the floodgates to the holistic and alternative revolution that's been happening mm-hmm. on the margins. Yeah. I mean, this is not, you know, some alternative to science. I, I recently read something th- where the, the author- mainstream authorities were um, ridiculing vitamin D as preventative of COVID and claim, declaring that to be false news hmm. and not scientific. And then somebody pointed out like this database of 2000 scientific papers that validate uh, the, the relationship between vitamin D and immunity. You know, it's like there, there, there's massive research mm. that hasn't mm. entered the mainstream, that hasn't entered the health, healthcare system. Mm. Like the CDC is not telling everybody to take vitamin D and to, uh, you know, take elderberry extract or whatever, you know, or to, to uh, you know, get acupuncture or to meditate. Yeah. Like, you know, these, these, or to, I mean, the biggest predictor of disease, bigger than drinking, bigger than smoking is loneliness. Mm. <laughs> you know, and this is that we're creating even more. So anyway, that, that's, I would like to see an embrace, even of the microbial world. Mm. A few years ago, there was an article called Is Excessive Hygiene Making Us Sick? And the article was like, yeah, like mm. the immune system <clears throat> challenges mm. and it needs information from the mm. outside, genetic information it needs to know the world. So mm-hmm. if we're constantly enclosed in an aseptic shell, gloves, masks, et cetera, then we're, I mean, that's separation. That's mm. what I've been thinking about from my, my, my whole life. You know, this, that's mm-hmm. separation and life does not thrive in separation. Mm. Life thrives in community. In fact, life is community. Mm. And you would only think otherwise if you accept that we are separate selves in a world of other. Then, yeah, then you thrive in isolation because the world outside is full of competitors mm. and, and random forces that are not your friend. They are indifferent. Mm. They're just mechanical forces. And so, of course, if that's your understanding of the world, then you better dominate and control Mm. so it all comes down to who we know ourselves to be Mm. and what we think the world is like is the world this mechanical arbitrary uh composition of generic particles and mathematical forces Mm. or is it conscious and intelligent and purposeful Mm. it comes down to that because if it is then we no longer seek to dominate it, but we instead ask, what is our right place in that world? What is ours to give, to contribute to the unfold of consciousness and beauty in the world? What is our gift rather than how do we preserve ourselves? That's what it comes down to. It's to ask, what is, what is mine to give? What if someone is saying, okay, what is mine to give, Charles? I, I either don't know what mine is to give. I don't know what I have to give. I'm not... I'm nothing special. I'm nothing. I'm not Charles. I'm not Oprah. I'm not so-and-so. How do I, what, what is mine to give? Don't know what mine is to give. 
how do I even access mine? What is mine to give? Is there any direction yeah. you can give? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be like some, you know, big, important looking person to have something to give. The recognition of what is yours to give comes, I mean, I think mostly it comes from, for me at least, it comes from having been given to mm. so generously that births in me the desire to give in turn and orients me toward that possibility. If you're surrounded by generous people mm. or aware of the generosity of others and of the universe, then you're going to want to give and you're going to look for those opportunities and you're going to cultivate that capacity within yourself. Mm. And in fact, we do live in a generous universe. Uh, I mean, we've all been given life. Right. We didn't earn that, did we? Right. Did you earn being born? No. Did you earn your heart? Hmm. No. All a gift. So hmm. to, to come to the recognition of that starts a process in motion and accelerates that process. Hmm. It's just the exercise of the truth upon us. Hmm. That's or, and, and then to recognize, to validate the part of ourself that already knows that. That, hmm. yeah, I'm here to do something meaningful and beautiful. It doesn't have to be big. You know, I, I, sometimes I think that when all is said and done and I'm on my deathbed, having my life review in that lucid, lucid crystal, the crystal clarity that you get when all of your pretensions and ambitions have been swept aside and there you are reviewing your life. Um, I think maybe I will get the most satisfaction from the time I've spent with my boys. Mm. My, my sons, you know, my children. Hmm. Um, maybe that will be the most important thing I've done. Wow. Because do we really know how this world works? <laughs> the, the dominant culture thinks that the world works by force and that the bigger your platform, the more money you have, the more control you have, the more hierarchical power, mm. then the more powerful you are. Mm. But if if we understand the principle of interconnection on the deepest level, that you're not separate from the world, that anything that happens in your private realm has an effect on the cosmos, mm. then we know that every act is equally powerful. And that maybe the most powerful people in our society are not those that we celebrate and put on the pedestal of power, but they're actually maybe the humble people. Hmm. I often get the sense that they're the ones holding the world together so that the big voices can even operate. They're holding the fabric of reality together hmm. and in tangible ways too. Like, like if it weren't for the selflessness of my grandmother, you know, taking beautiful care as best she could of her children, I wouldn't be here or I wouldn't, you know, or I would be so traumatized if she hadn't been, you know, and my parents hadn't been good parents and so forth. They, I, you know, they didn't do anything big, mm. but maybe I'm doing something big through them. So who's to say who's really big here? Right, right, right. Yeah. And I guess I would just uh, maybe just dedicate our conversation to those, to those people, mm. the humble people. Mm. Like you and I, you know, we're, I mean, we're not like famous or anything, but you know, we've got a big platform, right? People mm. can 
can tell us, oh, right. you're changing the world. You're doing such good work. Right. But the grandmothers, they don't yeah. necessarily even get that thanks. Yeah. They don't get that celebration. It's true. So, mm-hmm. and they're, from, from the story of, of interbeing, of interconnection, of reunion, they deserve it. Yeah. More than either of us do. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I have two quick, quick final questions for you, Charles, as we begin wrapping up. I mean, I feel like I could, at some point, I'd love to have you back for a part two uh, and, that, and dive deeper. You know, I think this whole experience is causing us to, and I think you, you're kind of touching on reevaluate who, who am I and why am I here and what's my purpose and this notion of success, you know, this idea of success that we've held. Uh, for the longest time in our culture. I'm curious how you see success, how you, how you have come to define success for yourself. You know, so often in our culture, it, it is fame, power, prestige, bank account, you know, money. And I think as that has just gone kind of crumbling on one level, I think it's forcing us all to reevaluate what, what is success. And so uh, if you could just take a moment uh, before the final question, just to maybe speak to success and maybe how we can we envision success for ourselves. Uh, people are losing their money, their jobs, their businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what can you say about that? You know, what is success to you? What have you come to realize success is? And in any words, on a, on a reframing, re-envisioning of success. Yeah, the the word success is is uh, I think what it actually means is to complete something. Hmm. to finish something. And there is a certain satisfaction with uh, a job well done. Hmm. And I think that's what we're really seeking when we seek success. It's the knowledge that we've done our best and we've done it beautifully to the best of our ability. Hmm. It's that inner satisfaction that won't accept any lies and that you can't deny and you can't pretend. Mm. You can't pretend to have it if it's not there. And if it is there, you know it. Like, there, have you ever had that feeling, wow, I did my best. I did a good job on that. It's like this feeling of satisfaction. Yes. Yeah. That's, and then, you know, maybe sometimes we get uh, trapped in a profession uh, or some other endeavor where, where the, the habits and the practices that bring outward success as defined by others don't bring that inner satisfaction. So then hmm. the path toward more su- toward success involves again, some loss mm. Mm. and, and, and the, the other thing is, again, uh, hinted at by the word itself. Success means that you're done with that now. Mm. And you've got that sense of satisfaction. So if you want another hit of that, do you just try to replicate and hmm. extend the earlier success? No, because it's done. Like you're done with that and it's time to move on. Um, mm. And and I guess one more thing. Um, Therefore, I would say the key to success in this deep sense 
is to expand our capacity to respond beautifully to every circumstance, which means that it doesn't depend on having privilege or good fortune or anything. Mm. It's how do you respond to circumstances? Viktor Frankl said that is the only freedom that we actually have. And even in the concentration camps, which were the worst circumstances any human being could be in, mm. he said there are those who went from hut to hut offering comfort to others and giving away their last piece of bread. Hmm. And he said that that proves that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, which hmm. is our, our power to respond, to choose our response to circumstances. Hmm. And so I would say that the key to success, <laughs> you know, to use that cliched phrase, um, is, to, is to grow in our capacity to respond intentionally to circumstances in a way that resonates with who we really are. I love that. Got a capacity to respond intentionally. Beautiful. Charles, I just want to, you know, respect your time. And a, lot, a, lot's, a lot's been said today. You've given definitely me a lot to think about. I think everyone listening in, some things to really begin chewing on you know, and think about and marinate on, so to speak. And so um, you said a lot. And so just as we wrap up, if there were three of the most important, if you could distill, as you reflect on your life, uh, uh, the three most important that you feel valuable lessons that you've learned, that if you can only pass these on to your kids and that you feel, okay, these ideas have helped me the most. I can only gift my kids these ideas. I think this would evolve them the most for the next generation. And maybe it'd be different on a different day, but I'm curious to hear your distillation of just the three wisdoms uh, that you feel would evolve the next generation the most. I'd love to hear what, you've, what they would be that you could share with us. Oh, gosh. It's, it's hard to do that without, uh, <laughs> you know. Putting you on the spot. Yeah, without... <laughs> I mean, there's so much wisdom out there. Um, yeah, just whatever, whatever comes to mind today, you know, maybe it'll be different on another day, but I'm, I'm just curious. Well, what's coming to mind is, if I could tell my younger self, I would say, don't be in such a hurry. Hmm. I would say, please treasure each moment you have with other people. Uh, you never know if you're going to see them again. Like, each moment is precious. Right. It's, I mean, it's a cliche. Like anything I'm going to say is going to be a cliche because cliches came from somewhere, <laughs> you know? Um, uh -huh. And maybe a third one. Yes. Please treasure every moment you have with other people. I mean, as you're thinking, it, it, that really hits home because there's only one regret I have in my life, Charles, when my mother passed away two years ago and uh, from cancer. I mean, I got to spend the entire year with her you know, back and forth, back and forth, chemo sessions, back and forth for an entire year, flying from LA to London. And the only regret I have is just, why did I wait till she was dying? You know, what, yeah. what, why did I wait till she was dying? And I think I read something where you said death, death like reveals the loving or death initiates us into more love, reminds us of the loving. And there was so much love I felt for her and just the ordinary moments I had with my mother. You know, just those simple moments were so special. So, yeah. 
Maybe that brings up a third one, um, which is that I say to myself, you don't have to qualify for love. Huh. (laughs) You don't have to qualify for love. Can you say anything about that so people were clear? I mean, I get what you're saying, but just... To be lovable, I don't have to be successful, be a good person... I'm already loved. Mm, mm, mm. And knowing that, anyone mm. who really knows that, who, who knows they are loved mm. by God, by mm-hmm. the universe, by other people, by the invisible beings that are watching us all the time, mm-hmm. anyone who knows that will be a better person mm. without aspiring to yeah. being a better person. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to qualify for love. You don't have to qualify for love. It's beautiful. Charles, could you assign um, just a simple, you know, one sentence or simple practice as a homework as we start wrapping up? Just what's one thing people can do right now as they go back into, before they go back into their lives? Just a simple thing, a thought, an action, uh, a little assignment that they could go do that would take I mean, I would just you know, play off these things uh, and ask people to notice the feeling of truth Mm. in themselves when they contemplate. I don't have to qualify to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And maybe the other one would be um, to give attention to the part of them that is brave and ready ready for change. Mm. Give attention to that part. Awesome. Folks, you heard it. Two little homework assignments from Charles, um, author of The Ascent of Humanity. If you haven't read that book, it's, it's a deep one. Uh, Charles, this has been a, such a pleasure, honor, privilege, joy just to meet you uh, via the screen of Zoom and interview you. Just excited that everyone in my community gets to meet you and just be blessed by your, your sharing and your work. Uh, I want everyone to just find out more about your work. What's the best uh, website that people can go to and find out about what you're up to? Can you direct uh, us there? Just Charles Eisenstein dot whatever it is dot org, I think. Dot org. Is dot dot org. something. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Yeah. And they can find about your books there. Charles yeah. Eisenstein dot org. Folks, we'll put that in the show notes. Folks, I told you this was going to be a special interview. Uh, do me a favor, everyone. Uh, download this episode. Share it with your friends on social media. Uh, send me an email, kubeblackson at kubeblackson.com and let me know your key takeaways from today's episode and, and how the homework assignment is going. Charles, thank you so much. Everyone. Yeah, thanks, Coop. It's been a pleasure. Everyone, Bye, much guys. love. We'll be connecting next week. Big hugs, folks. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs 
and love now.